0: Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight until today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins.
1: And I am your host, Brian Lasley.
0: So recently, we've gotten a lot of requests here to talk about a new book by Malcolm Gladwell, The Bomber Mafia. And I'm sorry to disappoint some of you by saying we're not going to do exactly that, the book's reception has been a little divisive, but it's nonetheless about a very important and fascinating topic, which is the bombing campaigns of World War II. I think all of us would agree that in a lot of ways, the experience of World War II shaped so much of what comes afterwards in terms of air power, and Gladwell's book gives us an opportunity to kind of delve into that topic, so we wanted to have a discussion here today to go a little bit beyond what was in the book, so whether you liked it or whether you didn't, I think this discussion can take us deeper into that topic and bring up some of the themes and the ideas, and also point to some of the other authors that can bring out some nuance and some other aspects of this conflict as well, so to do that, I'm joined today with our usual co-host, Dr. Brian Lasley. He's the author of Architect of Air Power, General Lawrence S. Cuter and the Birth of the U.S. Air Force, which is a biography of one of the key members of the Bomber Mafia. And we're also joined by Dr. Luke Truxel, one of the editors here at From Belusa Drones. Luke is a history instructor at Columbia State Community College and got his PhD from University of North Texas in 2018 and is the author of a forthcoming book, Command Unity and the American Air War in Europe. So thank you both for joining us.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here as always.
0: All right, so let's jump in with kind of the basics here. What is strategic bombing and where does it come from? Where does that theory originate?
2: I mean, you have to look at World War One. The origins are always World War One, And a lot of these theorists are trying to figure out what to do with this new weapon, the airplane. A lot of it is kind of this follow-up reaction of, like, uh, you see strategic bombing introduced in World War One with the, uh, you know, you have the Zeppelin raids on London. The British have their own uh, strategic bombing missions against Germany. And so you see it starting to be used in its infancy, really, in World War One. But it's after World War One where you really see, you see kind of these theorists kind of pop up that want to try to find a way to, I guess you could say, use it better, to kind of more formally use to develop ideas about it because it was kind of done a little bit ad hoc in the sense that there was no real doctrine prior to World War I. And so there is kind of this momentum after World War I to see how to better use it. Yeah,
1: for me, I think the important thing to remember is that the theories that are being developed on both sides of the ocean here in the United States and with the bomber forces of the RAF, they make a lot of sense These were guys, if they hadn't served in World War I, uh, were certainly cognizant of the loss of life in the First World War. And so what they were looking for, as odd as it might sound, was a better way to make war. And what strategic bombardment offered in theory was perhaps the ability to go over and not through so when you look at the stagnant lines of the trench warfare of the first world war here was a generation of young officers looking for a way to ensure that that never had to happen again so the idea that you could take the airplane that you could fill it with bombs that you could attack vital centers of the enemy might offer you a way out of the stagnation of the trench warfare of World War I. So I think it's really important again to remember that these theories made sense.
0: Yeah, and I think for me, it's important to note how, Luke, you mentioned it was ad hoc. It certainly is evolving over time. It's like no one shows up at the beginning of World War One with these ideas intact. Some people start developing these ideas as the war goes on. And then it's more in between the wars that we see this emergence of some of these ideas. But they're all a little bit different. And you have, you know, guys like the Italian Giulio Duhay. He's got a little bit different idea of how to use the airplane for bombing than, say, Billy Mitchell in the US does versus Trenchard in England does. So they're all evolving in a different way. And I think there is some cross-pollination maybe between some of those folks, but not necessarily a ton of it. And just how much cross-pollination there is, is something that some historians like uh, like Craig Morris have really tried to track down some of his work, The Origins of Strategic Bombing.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Morris's work. Uh, a lot of, of what the early uh, air power historians look at is who read what and when did they read it, right? Mm-hmm. So when was Duhay first read over here by members of the Air Corps Tactical School? How much was Mitchell familiar with Duhay's writings? Uh, how much of the RAF schools of thought were making it over here to the United States and vice versa? I mean, you, you had some of the lesser known, much less famous, say, than Billy Mitchell, you know, William Sherman's air warfare about early tactical use and not only bombardment, but fighter aircraft as well. And so it wasn't just bombardment. It was pursuit. It was, you know, what we would today call ISR, you know, the surveillance uh, and everything that with, with that. And so I think the, the cross-pollination, uh, the sharing of ideas is really important because these guys, particularly the Air Corps Tactical School guys, were out looking for you know new books, new documents, new ways to expound upon what they were working on. So they weren't just, I know the temptation is to think that they were you know members of this this cult-like organization, only reading and only talking to each other. Uh, and that's not entirely true.
0: Well, that's a perfect segue into that next question I want to talk about, which is who is the Bomber Mafia? Who are these people? We've mentioned a few names already, and you brought up the Air Corps Tactical School. What is that school, and who are some of these people that we would call the the Bomber Mafia?
1: The Bomber Mafia, and I'm not, you know, look, uh, I'm not entirely sure when the term comes into wide usage. I know it's a perfectly acceptable term to use today, but it's this cohort of American bombardment theorists who are at the Air Corps Tactical School really in about the mid-1930s. This is when the American doctrine of what becomes known as high altitude daylight precision bombing is really coming into its own so as members of this this cohort or this click if you will you've got Hal George who is not to be confused with Hal George because there's actually two Hal Georges uh, <laughs> pursuit George and bomber George are the easiest way to separate them so you've got bomber George you've got Haywood Hansel who is one of the principal participants in Gladwell's book you've got Lawrence Cuter and you've got Kenneth Walker. Those four are really who I tend to think of as the principal members of the Bomber Mafia. Uh, But you could also add into there, you know, anyone who took classes in bombardment theory while attending the Air Corps Tactical School, which would be basically every general officer in the United States Army Air Forces during World War II.
2: I would add a name to that list that Brian kind of put out, I would put in Ira Akron, again, not just because he is one of those people that took the bombardment course, but he does publish quite a bit. I mean, he writes in the latter end of the 1930s, but he does publish some books when the United States is Still not at war, trying to advocate for a daylight precision bombing air force. And so he's definitely one of these advocates that is out there that is from the Air Corps Tactical School, but he's also going to be one of the first practitioners of that new doctrine that is being developed at the Air Corps Tactical School.
1: And as long as we're throwing names out, you you would have to include, you know, Muir S. Fairchild, Donald Wilson, uh, and then Carl Spatz, who is actually going to lead American bombardment operations throughout much of World War II in Europe, is another name that that we could kind of throw in there as part of the bomber mafia.
0: So you mentioned high altitude daylight precision bombing, which is a little bit of a mouthful. It's usually uh, an acronym. And that's kind of the school of thought that emerged from the Air Corps Tactical School, right? This idea of we're going to fly really high, hopefully above some of the anti-air defenses in the daytime so that we can see the targets really well. And we're going to try to do precision bombing, which is where we're going to try to hit specific targets, you know, using our bomb site technology, which other countries had their own bomb sites as well that weren't the famous Norden. And some of them worked better. Better or equal to the the Norden, but there's a lot of noise made a lot of times in some of the literature about the differences between the American approach, which I just described, and kind of the British approach, which is this more kind of area bombing approach. And I think it's important to note that that isn't anything inherent to American or British kind of identities or culture. It's the British did try precision bombing uh, and did in the daylight, and it didn't go so well, so it evolved into something else. Can can y'all give us a little bit about what are the differences between this precision bombing and area bombing approach? How, how and why did that develop?
2: Area bombing is kind of developed as kind of, it's a pragmatic and cruel doctrine in the sense that the doctrine itself is cruel in the sense that you're using it to kill a lot of civilians in the sense that you will be killing a lot of civilians by targeting an area. But uh, at the same time, it's very pragmatic because of the way in which it came about. And here's what I mean is area bombing, let's just say what that is. It is the targeting of cities or an area. It's not carpet bombing. I see that mixed up all the time. People uh, will mix up carpet bombing, area bombing. Carpet bombing is a tactical type of bombing. It's used on the battlefield. Area bombing is where you are saturating a city with bombs. You're targeting an area. And the British developed this because, one, they realized that they didn't have the bomb sites or the technology to accurately bomb their targets. But also, they could not afford to take the same losses that the Americans could when they tried to implement their own daylight precision bombing campaign. For example, on 14 and 18 December, they launched uh, two raids on Wilhelmshaven with uh, 36 Wellingtons, and they lost 17 of those Wellingtons. So it shows the high price that the British pay early on when they try to implement daylight precision bombing themselves. And so they come to this kind of realistic conclusion that if we want to maintain a strategic air force and we still want to carry out a strategic bombing campaign, well, we can't strike during the daytime because we will be hit. You know, we will take heavy losses. So we have to attack at night. Well, the problem is, is that there's no real good night bombing system other than to simply target the cities and saturate the cities. Therefore, you see them switch to area bombing as they switch to night bombing. And this is something that, Churchill even brings up with Ira Aker at the Casablanca conference when he's trying to convince Acre to switch to area bombing, saying that you guys are taking way too many losses during your daylight precision bombing campaigns and missions in uh, 1942. He had serious doubts that the Americans could maintain the losses that they did. And so it's kind of a, it doesn't develop out of like some sense of cruelty or intentional maliciousness. The only thing they had really left to use with their strategic air force at that time.
1: And Luke, you mentioned the the Casablanca conference. And so you have to imagine that the British have been at this for years when the American Eighth Air Force begins to arrive in Europe and the American bombardment leaders are very committed to this concept of high altitude precision daylight bombing. And they're really unwilling to give it up. Meanwhile, the British have had two years of experiential learning, if you will, and those horrific losses. So you could see where the the two theories come into conflict against each other.
2: Yes. And and again, the Americans really understood the British point of view. They understood why the British switched to night bombing and the British understood why the Americans wanted to pursue daylight precision bombing. There is a understanding of each side of the argument. There is this understanding of why they have taken out the positions that they do, but both are dug in at the same time. And so that's kind of where we get this famous, you know, round the clock bombing compromise where everybody kind of goes their own way.
0: There's some really good work on this from, I, I still think Tammy Davis Biddle's book, Rhetoric and Reality and Air Warfare is probably the best examination of this kind of concept about what air power is kind of hoping to accomplish through these different methods and then how it doesn't really play out according to the theory in the war itself. You know, Steve McFarlane's book on precision bombing is also really good. And Conrad Crane's got a couple books about this that also get into it. But I just want to point readers towards those um, if they're interested in the topic.
1: Yeah, Mike, that's a good point. You know, you also got Sherry's The Rise of American Air Power. We mentioned Craig Morris's Origins of American Strategic Bombing Theory. There are so many good books out there. Uh, there's been a lot of really, really good work in this particular area. And I think the reason that there is so much literature on this is because it is still contentious. This is an issue that we as air power scholars and then the, the wider historical community continue to struggle to try and understand.
2: And I would say even if you, besides just the historical community, there's that famous moment where there's the unveiling of the Arthur um, Harris statue where there were protests there. So there's this huge debate over precision bombing versus area bombing and the morality of both. Now, one of the things that is really good about Stephen McFarland's book that you mentioned is that he gets really into the technology and he really shows the limits of even the Norden bomb site. And this idea that you could drop a bomb down a Pickle Barrel from high altitude, well, it was tested out in pristine conditions, I believe, in the American Southwest, where you have clear skies. You're not going to really be dealing with any kind of fighter opposition. And so when you have to put it into practical use in Europe, or as we'll later talk about in Japan, where you have... High winds, a jet stream, clouds, and flak and fighter opposition, and then northern bomb site, which was already not the most accurate bomb site, even though it was advertised as a great bomb site. When it met battlefield conditions, it never really um, lived up to its potential.
1: And I think, Luke, this is an important point, is that we tend to focus on the Norden as the be-all, end-all of bomb sites in World War II. And there's there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, I pass one every day when I go up to the Air Force Academy, we have one in the case there. But there is a lot of bomb site work being done in what we call the interwar years. Uh, you know, the name Sperry's. Tversky comes to mind. So Norton being obviously the, the most popular, but definitely not the only one used during the Second World War.
0: Right. And I think, Luke, what you're saying about the technology not living up to this idea brings us to, I think, both approaches, the American and the British approach kind of end at the same place. And by the time you get later in the war, you've got both sides participating in these giant firebombing raids. And, you know, the firebombing of Tokyo and the other 65 Japanese cities is the culmination of that. But what's sometimes overlooked in some of that discussion is that there's firebombing happening in Europe, even before that. So how does places like Dresden and Hamburg and, and things like that fit into the story of how these bombing campaigns turn into firebombing and what that means.
2: I'm always careful when I describe Hamburg because while that is kind of what the British wanted to do at Hamburg, it's not what the Americans wanted to do. And in fact, during the Hamburg raid, the Americans had a lot of problems because they were trying to bomb specific targets. I believe the naval dockyards were one of them. And they couldn't see their targets because of all the smoke from the fires. And so that was a real problem. But we do see an evolution towards the United States moving towards area bombing. They initially tried not to call it area bombing. They, They referred To it as um, blind bombing is what I've seen in the documents, where they introduced the H2X system to do some radar bombing, kind of like what the British did with the, uh, I believe theirs was the H2S. And one of the areas where I see this is in Romania, where when the Romanians started using smoke screens to cover their cities and their facilities to protect precision targets, the Americans switched to blind bombing just to saturate the area in the hopes that it would hit the target. And what it did is it hit the target and a lot of civilians. Sometimes it did miss the target as well. So again, it's kind of this really big spread that you get with the H2X system. And so we see the Americans in 1944, late 1943, Early 1944, already kind of moving away from daylight precision bombing with the introduction of the H-2X system and this idea of blind bombing. By the time we get to 1945 and we get to Dresden, the Americans have already started using blind bombing quite regularly. When there's clouds over a target, they have no problem using the H-2X system.
1: And I think, you know, now that you've gotten to 1945, this is a point that I I wanted to make sure we make, is that there tends to be a thought process that says that the Americans always used high-altitude precision daylight bombing and that they were out from the very beginning of the war to prove that that worked. Well, the bombers themselves were sent against various targets, you know, various types of targets. At one point, it's petroleum, oil, and lubricants. At another point, it's the transportation network. At another point, it's the submarine pins. And so there's all these various target sets that the Americans go after during the war. And so those proponents of the bomber mafia, those proponents of high-altitude precision daylight bombing, do always try to bring it back to that, to execute that theory. So this is not even about, you know, was strategic bombing decisive? Uh, It's much about, was it effective? What did it
2: contribute? Because the bombers were pulled away to hit various targets throughout the war. Something I should point out, we sometimes, when we talk about precision bombing, we need to remember what precision bombing is in World War II with the Americans. A successful mission is getting your bombs within 1,000 feet of what is designated the target building, which means you could be 1,000 feet off the building. And still have technically hit the target area. So you could have missed the target entirely and still technically have had a successful mission. I should point out that we do see kind of an evolution in 42 and 43. You could argue as early as 42 and 43, we see kind of the United States starting to move to more of an area effect, even though they're still going after precision targets. Curtis LeMay famously introduced this um, flying box formation where what you would do previously is you would have all these individual bombardiers which would try to each individually hit the target. This was a criticism that Curtis LeMay had of uh, Frank Armstrong, who famously led the 306 bomb group and uh, flew a lot of missions successfully early in 1942 and commanded two groups in 1942. And his real big criticism of Armstrong was that, you know, he allowed these bombardiers to individually kind of go after the target, but it didn't really help with the effectiveness of the defense. And also, the bombs were kind of not really any kind of pattern. They were kind of all over the place. So LeMay, realizing that What's best is to kind of use kind of a shotgun approach, which is you kind of group all the bombers together. You have a lead bomber. And once they drop their bombs, everybody else kind of drops on that lead bomber. And so you see kind of this evolution starting really early on towards going for a wider and wider spread effect because they realize that these individual bomb sites just can't hit the specific target. So we always kind of have to be careful with regards to what we call precision bombing, how precise precision bombing is at this time.
1: The same argument can be made today in 2021. It's very difficult. I, I think a lot of people tend to think of precision-guided munitions as some form of scalpel. And to be perfectly honest, there's there's only so small a hole a 2,000-pound bomb is going to make.
0: Right. And uh, before we get into LeMay, since we've mentioned him, I just want to point some of the listeners to a really good book on this, which is Steve Bork's Beyond the Beach, which gets into so many of the issues with this so-called precision bombing and how it really isn't precise at all. And he's done a a really amazing uh, kind of moving work that looks at what it was like to be a French civilian living through these bomb attacks.
1: And Mike, if I could piggyback on that, I would also recommend the great Richard Overy's The Bombers and the Bombed, Mm -hmm. published in the United Kingdom as The Bombing War, Europe, 1939 to 1945. An absolutely excellent book that does uh, indeed look at both sides, those dropping the bombs and those being bombed.
0: I totally agree. So let's get into this uh, Hansel LeMay question. This is kind of a hinge moment, but it's one that's it's easy to kind of paint them. Hey, Hansel and Curtis LeMay as, you know, opposing archetypes of black and white. But I think there's a little more nuance to that. So what's really going on with these two guys? Why is Hansel fired? What factors are at play? What's going on that leads to this change of command in Japan?
1: Well, let's first start out with something that's often missed, and that's Hansel's command of bombardment wings in Europe. In fact, Larry Cuter, when he commands the first bombardment wing, and going back to Luke's point about LeMay coming up with the the combat box formation, LeMay was one of Cuter's squadron commanders, and it's Cuter who goes to Acre and says, this guy LeMay has got some really ingenious ways of doing bombardment that, that we need to pay attention to. But Cuter ends up going to North Africa. Hansel comes in to take command of the first and later third bombardment wing and Hansel flies a lot of these bombing missions so much so to the point that he's he's eventually grounded because his commanders in particular acre are really worried about the strain that it's taking on him so first off this idea that lemay is the the combat coded warrior and that hansel is the intellectual doesn't really hold water with me hansel went on a lot of these bombardment missions in europe now to say that Hansel was certainly more an adherent to high-altitude precision daylight bombing is, is perfectly fine.
2: Yeah, and I think the reason we get kind of some of that perception is a book by Ralph Nutter, who is a navigator for LeMay, but also he started with Hansel. He has this famous book called Possum and the Eagle, I think it is. Yep, that's it. And he kind of plays into this perception, and there are personality differences at play here. There are different command styles, but that sometimes mixes up kind of, We get this idea of, as Brian pointed out, where we have kind of Hansel, the intellectual. And I'll admit, you even look at a photo of him, he kind of comes off as a little bit of a nerdy type. If you look at him in a picture and then you look at Curtis LeMay, you hear kind of how guys describe Curtis LeMay. He kind of comes off as the combat leader, but that's not actually who they are. If you read LeMay's papers, you read his reports, they're very thorough. He's an intellectual in his own right, but they have these very different ideas on bombing as the war progresses.
0: So what's behind the change in command? Why is Hansel taken out and LeMay put in? I think there's a lot more going on with that decision than maybe meets the eye.
1: To me, it really comes down to war weariness. We're talking late 44 and on into 1945. Germany is on its last leg. They are being closed in upon from both sides after victory in Europe is declared and the focus moves entirely to the Pacific theater, the United States, the United States Army Air Forces, the United States Army, all services, all political leaders want the war to end. And so when you look at it from the perspective of what Haywood Hansel is doing with the the 20th and 21st bomber commands, the 21st being run out of the, the Marianas, is Arnold is no longer willing to wait on results. And so Hansel is kind of left in the unfortunate position of, he is the one trying to get the B-29 operations out of the Marianas going. So he's the one who is running into the jet stream for the first time. He's the one who's dealing with the intricacies of the B-29, which, by the way, is, is one of the most expensive procurement endeavors of the Second World War. I mean, it ranks up there with the Manhattan Project for, for crying out loud. And so Hansel is is really struggling to get these operations off in a significant manner. And so I, I just don't think that Arnold's willing to wait for Hansel to come to the conclusion that that the answer is, we're going to have to change our tactics. Now, look, this kind of goes back to some of what we've said already, LeMay is definitely the more famous of the two. So Arnold kind of in conjunction with Loris Norstad and again Larry Cuter here, here's this uh, this core group kind of come to the conclusion that Hansel is A at the end of his rope and B just not getting the job done. Now Norstad and Cuter both recommend that it's probably time to leave Hansel and I should point out that Cuter and, and uh, Hansel are very very close friends so everyone kind of has a problem with this and they think that Arnold should fly out and do it personally but he doesn't. He sends Norstad out and so
2: out goes Hansel in comes LeMay. And Ryan brings up an important point, is that Arnold never really had any patience when it came to a job not getting done with regards to a bombing mission or a campaign. He put incredible pressure on his subordinates throughout the war, and they felt this pressure all throughout air operations. We see this famously with Acre in 1943 with the uh, 8th Air Force and that campaign. Arnold was constantly putting pressure on Acre to get results. And same thing sort of happens. He doesn't necessarily get fired, but he gets kind of kicked up upstairs. But he does get pulled out of the Eighth Air Force and moved to a different theater because Arnold has no patience. And also, you got to think of kind of how Arnold's viewing this as well. He's also impatient because he's not just fighting to win this war and to bring it to a swift conclusion. He's also trying to prove the effectiveness of an independent Air Force, what a strategic Air Force can do. If a campaign is taking too long, it kind of starts to hurt his point about all the money that's being invested in these Air forces in these massive bomber fleets. And so Arnold is under incredible pressure himself to prove that we need an independent air force. And he doesn't have any patience to wait on operations to really come into fruition. And we see that constantly throughout the war with Arnold's subordinates, two of which famously get kind of, I, one gets transferred in Acre, Hansel, who gets removed from command.
1: I would add to that, you probably could not name a U.S. Army Air Force's general during the Second World War who was not on the receiving end of one of Arnold's tongue lashings at one point or another. You know, we've we've mentioned Acre, we've mentioned Hansel, but Cuter and George both get chewed out in Arnold Arnold's office. At one point, one of Arnold's subordinates, and this is really not Arnold's fault, but it absolutely gets attributed to him. One of Arnold's subordinates has a heart attack in Arnold's office. And so the story goes around that Arnold caused this man to have a heart attack. Yeah, the, the impatience, the need to get something accomplished, and the need to end the war all go into this.
0: Well, this gets back around to a question that, uh, Luke, you kind of brought this up earlier and I want to go back to it. It's an idea that Mark Claudefelter really gets into in his book called Beneficial Bombing, which is this idea that we're going to bomb people. We're going to kill a lot of people in order to somehow avoid killing less people later. It sounds insane. Like it doesn't seem like it would make sense, but that's the idea that is underlying all of this, right? The whole point of strategic bombing is we're going to have this terrible air campaign, kill all these targets, kill all these people on the ground, and that that will make the war shorter in the long run, and thus will save more lives than we'll lose by doing this. The big question overhanging this entire episode, and really the the entire field of scholarship on this is, did it work, right? What is the legacy of these strategic bombing campaigns? Did they work? And what do they mean for the future?
2: Well, it depends on the campaign. There are some specific precision bombing campaigns that we can point to that had a strategic effect and even a operational effect on the ground war. There's the famous oil plan that worked quite effective. The transportation plan. We can see those strategic bombing campaigns work, and they were both daylight precision bombing campaigns. With regards to area bombing, the concept of just using I'm trying to remember the author's name, but uh, he called it punishment bombing, punishing the civilians. Pape. Thank you, Pape. But you punish the civilians until basically you uh, get them to force the government to come to some kind of peaceful negotiation. I don't think that works. And here's why the United States did a lot of area bombing of Germany. But it wasn't area bombing that brought Germany down. It was the ground forces supported by strategic air forces that really brought about an end to Nazi Germany. And the big question that always comes up with this is Japan and the area bombing campaign, the fire raids against Japan, and the atomic bombing of Japan. But I think it's better to take a bigger picture and look at what Japan is facing strategically beyond the air war. The war is going badly just about everywhere for Japan. They've been driven back to the Japanese home islands in the South Pacific. In China, they're facing the Soviet Union, a massive Soviet invasion that has just rolled back their forces. They're facing counteroffensives in Burma and being pushed back all across the map. They are facing losses. And then you add on the United States Navy's blockade to that. And then you throw in now the area bombing campaign, the firebombing campaign. Then you throw in the atomic bombs. I mean, it's a matter of how you lose. And and I think that's basically why Japan came to the conclusion that they did, that they had to end it then, because there was no way they're going to win the war. And now it's how you lose the war. And so that's the best example that people bring up of trying to say that the atomic bombing proves this concept. But I think when you look at that picture more fully, you see that it's a culmination of things that are going on that forces Japan to surrender. You
1: know, Luke, you said something that reminded me of the strategic bombing surveys done after the war. And, of course, there are some problems with the strategic bombing surveys themselves. But one of the most famous lines that gets quoted, and this is the the Army Air Force's kind of after-action report on the whole thing, is that they say, look, by November 1945, even if we had not dropped the atomic bombs, the Japanese were going to be forced to surrender. And I know it's not our job as historians to get into counterfactuals. But when you look at everything that was beginning to strangulate the Japanese islands, there's very good reason to believe that a land invasion might not have had to take place. But again, this brings us back around to the concept of war weariness and wanting the thing to be over.
0: Yeah, and I think getting into this topic, one of the reasons this topic is so compelling and that books on it continue to sell well is that it really gets at some tough, moral dilemmas that force us to ask some deep questions about who we are as people and as societies i mean this is the trolley problem but on the scale of millions right it's not just a are you willing to kill one person to save five with a trolley track or something this is depending on what source you get your statistics from because there's estimates that vary somewhere close to two million people died in bombing attacks and 75 percent of those were british and american bombs was that saving the lives of several million more by shortening the war to some degree? Like, I don't know how we would calculate that. And even if we could calculate it, how do we answer the question of whether or not that's worth it? Like, that's that's a deep philosophical kind of question that it's hard enough as historians to wrestle with. I can't imagine, you know, having four stars on my chest and having to answer those questions in an operational military environment. And no wonder all these guys had heart attacks. But just trying to deal with those types of like deep moral. Moral questions forces us to really look at ourselves in some different ways and, and make some tough calls it's hard to criticize and it's hard to praise and i'm not sure where to go with that but that's probably why this stuff is so compelling to me
1: mike you make some really good points there I'm reminded of the sage comedian Eddie Azard when he talks about losses in World War II being so great that essentially the human mind really can't comprehend them. And I think that's one of the problems we have with strategic bombardment. And I think the people who conducted these operations struggled with this. We often make LeMay out to be, you know, this heartless individual, but he must have thought about it. I mean, he said that had the war gone the other way, he would have been tried as a war criminal. So LeMay very much recognized what he was doing. I don't think that this was an easy decision for any of the participants.
2: This is something that has always struck me. Several years ago, I read Frank Armstrong's uh, journal, which you can find online. He had met with a member of one of his air crew that had bailed out over France, had escaped, and made his way back to England. And he described what bombing one of the cities was like because he was just outside the city. And he said he could feel each bomb hitting like a shockwave. He could feel the shockwave of it, and it was bouncing him off the ground. And he was outside the city of it being bombed. And that stuck with Frank Armstrong. He wrote that in his journal, and he said he He couldn't even imagine what it was like to be under the bombs. It it stuck with him. And he commanded the 306 bomb group, I believe the 97th. And he also went on to command an air division as well. Brian's right about this. These guys did think heavily about the consequences of those people being bombed. They're not heartless. They're not these people that are just kind of in these back rooms, just planning out these missions, just seeing targets and seeing data and information. They do take these consequences into action. They do think about the civilian casualties. And that's something that gets brought up again and again in some of the documents you see in 1942. When you start to see these wide misses in France, commanders are really disturbed when they start realizing how inaccurate the precision bombing doctrine is when it's first introduced.
0: Well, I think if there's anything that we can know for sure, it's that there's more room for more history books on this topic. We have not answered all the questions and there's a lot of questions that have yet to be asked and answered. And it's always good to have new scholars asking new questions and coming up with new answers for it. So hopefully this has helped point some people towards some other resources and gotten some interest going in that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I hope that perhaps our listeners will will grab some of these books that we've we've mentioned throughout here.
0: All right, well, that's about all we have for time. I wanna thank you both again for uh, agreeing to do this and being on here. So uh, Luke, if people wanna know more about your work, where can they find you online? I can be found at Luke underscore truxel on Twitter. Very cool. Brian, where are you at online?
1: You can find me at www.brianlasley.com. Uh, and more often than that, you can find me on Twitter at Brian Lasley, uh, And if you're in the Colorado Springs area, you can now find me at your United States Air Force Academy.
0: Excellent. Uh, well, I'm Mike Hankins, and I'm on Twitter at Hankinstein, with a T-I-E-N. I'm on Instagram at M W, and I'm at MWHankins.com. All of us are online at BalloonsToDrones.com as well. Our music is created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at DigitalFishMedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email, please visit balloonsadrones.com contact. And to submit an article to us for publication, please go to balloonsadrones.com submissions and we'll see you next time.